You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning. It's great to be in front of you today sharing God's Word. My name is Burton French, and I'm one of the elders of the church here. And just by way of introduction, everything that can be said about me starts with the letter B. My name is Burton. I'm a bald-headed, blue-eyed Baptist banker from Beaumont who likes the beach and baseball, and I edited beer from the list. Um, But thankfully, I'm not a Baylor bear. (laughs) But, and this is an important part, I'm a 1980 graduate of Fighting Texas Aggie. There we go. I've been wanting to do that. Uh, So that's me. I'm married to Joan. Uh, my wife of 40 years, we celebrated that two weeks ago today, so very grateful for that. We, uh, we joined the church in 2010, uh, been serving as an elder since 2014, and we are just very, very grateful to be a part of this fellowship, this communion of saints here at Northway. We're grateful there's so many of you that have had a huge impact on, on us. And uh, so we're grateful. Let's, uh, before we start, we're going we're gonna to open in prayer. I'll pray for our time. Heavenly Father, uh, we just acknowledge you as the source of life, source of goodness, uh, the source of our joy, our purpose, and in our very lives. So, Lord, we just give you this time as we open your word. As always, we need you to inform us. My prayer is that you would get me out of the way and that you would speak through it, that your word would, uh, would really interact with hearts uh, and minds today. Lord, may we be open to your voice as you, uh, you speak today. So we give you uh, this time. So we, last week we opened in the, the book of Judges, and Shay uh, gave us an introduction. And, and, uh, and during that, he, he didn't start with the book of Judges, but as, as we usually do here at Northway, he, he grounded it in the gospel. And so he started actually back at the very beginning of Genesis, and he grounded it in creation and fall, uh, in the entrance of sin into the world. And then he went through, not just to Judges, but all the way, as we have to do, to the cross and to the resurrection and to the gospel, so that we could ground this set of unusual and graphic stories that we're going to go through over the next few weeks and judges, we can ground it in where it fits in this grand narrative of Scripture. So we've got these uh, 60 books, 66 books, 40, at least 40 human authors of Scripture written over 1,200 years. And behind that is the voice of the Holy Spirit that's revealing His message and His his truth to us. And so Shay did that, uh, grounding us in where this book fits. And we see we're going to learn this morning from our first judge. These next uh, series of lessons are going to be on, on one e- a, a judge from Israel. And today it's going to be Othniel. And we had to keep this kind of quiet uh, we, because usually when you preach on Othniel, there's a a rush and a flood of people, and we were afraid with our light staff and all that that it would be difficult. 
So, so we've kept it kind of quiet, but that is the lesson today. It's going to be in Judge, Judges 3, uh, chapter, uh, verse 7. And if you have your Bible, you can turn there. We're going to get to it in a minute. I'm going to share a, a, a few other things with you. Uh, this, this passage is made up of only five verses. And unlike some of the passages we're going to get to in the weeks ahead, there's not a lot of, of uh, color. There's not a lot of violence. There's not a lot of gore and drama. We're going to get into all that. And Brady's going to hit it full force uh, next week with a PG-13. He'll probably make it PG-13, but it could be R-rated if it were really done well. Well, this one is, there's not a lot of detail. And, and, and so, but, it, but within, this, within these five verses in the study of Othniel, there is everything that is going to be repeated in this cycle that we, we see in Judges. So we'll, we'll get into that. And before we do, I just share with you kind of as your elder, because I don't get up here much, and I just wanted to share a few things from my heart. And, and that's that in my, um, my interaction with Scripture and what it has meant in my life. And here I'm 63. That was another recent anniversary on Friday. I turned 63 years old. And, and I look back, you know, in my life uh, as, a, as a journey with God's Word. I really do uh, think about that. Not of, not of my own doing, but, but of the Lord. And I've never taken a seminary class. I'm not a doctor. I'm a banker, not a, not a pastor. I haven't, haven't been to seminary um, yet. Um, you know, I did take a, a New Testament survey in 1987 at Moody Bible Institute. If that counts, maybe that that's something. But that was 30, you know, five years ago. So so uh, so we'll see what you do. But by the way, I would encourage all of you guys to do something like that. If you haven't, uh, I regret that I didn't do more of that over the years. And and to be able to take those opportunities to take online classes, to take all the classes that we offer here. But it's great for the building blocks of a, of a life in the Word. So, would just encourage you. But for me personally, um, I grew up in a Christian home, and and the Word of God was something that was built in me early. I didn't I didn't interact with it. I didn't submit myself to it. Um, but it was there, and I had daily, uh, weekly Sunday school, and so the stories from the Old Testament, the stories of Jesus and the gospel were, were in me and the seeds were planted. And, but after that, I went through, you know, quite a season of doubt in my life through high school and college where I was, you know, and it wasn't just a matter that, oh, I, I sinned and that. It was my heart and my not trusting the Lord, my questioning who he was and questioning my faith and who Jesus was. And yet, as a young adult, adult, God was so gracious that he continued to, to woo me and, and to put people into my life to share his word with me. And it was, it was as a young adult that I be, the word began to actually transform my heart and my mind. And now I can look back as a 63-year-old at this, this, this life of just giving myself uh, to, a, to a journey with God's word. It's not linear. Sometimes it's dry. Sometimes it's vibrant and fruitful. You know, you go in those cycles, but it's always there. And for me, the Word of God is like this voice that's always behind me that's, that's informing my life. And as I go through all these events uh, of life, whether it's marriage, fatherhood, have three, three sons, 
whether it's the career and the different careers and direction we take, whether it's the music we like or the, the politics we engage in or the, the people we hang out with, whatever, um, whatever those things are, it's the, the Word of God that, that informs and directs and gives shape and meaning uh, to life. And I'm grateful for that. Oftentimes, it's, it's the counsel and it's the correction that I need. I often need correction, and I have that voice of God in the Word of God. So that's what the Word of God means to me. And I'm just really grateful to be able to, to share with you today. One of the, my um, metaphors, my life pictures, is that of a, le- a ladder against the wall. Uh, because I, I think that as humans, each one of us are created to be ladder climbers. That's kind of in us. We set our goals, we set our hopes, and we strive and we climb toward those. And I found my life is that of, of climbing ladders against walls. And the question I've often had to ask is, is my ladder against the right wall? And what do I find when I get to the top? Oftentimes you get to those goals and you wonder, is this what is this what I really was? Well, it's the Word of God that's always informing. And I've, I've found in my life that oftentimes God is saying, uh, climb faster. You need to go. Spur on. Be courageous. Sometimes it's, you need to stop. Sometimes it's, you need to get, get down and go, go to the bottom of the ladder. Oftentimes it's, move the ladder. You're against the wrong wall. And there have been times in my life where, He's actually had to move the ladder for me because of my resistance to his voice. But it's the word of God through all that that has been giving me shape and meaning. And this morning, we're going to do it this morning, but the way I like to interact with Scripture anytime I open it is to ask three questions. And, and we will do that for this passage later on. It's Number one, it's to ask, what is God? the Holy Spirit revealing about God? What is this passage telling me about God and who He is and how He thinks and feels? Secondly, what does it reveal about the world around me? What does it reveal about the the reality that we live in, both historically and present day, because it relates to both? And then lastly, and maybe not necessarily most importantly, but a critical piece is what is it revealing about myself? And that's a piece that we often miss when we interact with Scripture. And that's the challenge. We don't want to look at Scripture as a third-person study. That's where we end up with an intellectual study, um, and it gets in the head but not the heart. We want soul change. And so ask that question, what is God revealing about myself in this passage? So with that, let's, let's dive in uh, to the passage today. We're going to look uh, at Othniel from Judges 3. We'll start out, it should be on the, on the screen here. I'll read it out loud. Read with me. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushon Rishathim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushon Rishathim for eight years. 
And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathian into his hand and his hand prevailed over him. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then the Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So what do we see in this passage? First of all, there in verse 7, uh, we see that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they turned to other gods, to the gods of the, the people, the indigenous peoples who they had been in their midst. And we have to really put ourselves in that place to understand how remarkable this is because it was not that long before, maybe we don't know exact timeline, but maybe it was only 20 years earlier that they had actually received their inheritance and gone into the land and took up residence there. 20 years, and then that was preceded, preceded by 40 years of remarkable activity of the Lord, leading them from Egypt across the Red Sea, having the Passover and the angel of death uh, going into the, the wilderness and the journey, receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, uh, having, being led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, manna in the wilderness, the law being given to Moses and the whole structure of society uh, being built. And they had seen this interaction, God's very presence in the tabernacle, and given their inheritance, God fulfilling all of his promises, and just within 20 years, they forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals. That's remarkable. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we're told that God did that. God left the peoples there with other gods in their midst to test them. This was a time of testing and verse 4 said they were being tested in order uh, to see if they would be faithful, obedient to the Lord, and they did not. And so what was God's response? Verse 8 tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, I want us to think about the anger of the Lord because it's easy for us to put our imprint of we think of fall, we're all fallen humanity, and we can think of fallen fathers who get angry with their kids. I would get angry with my kids, and one time threw a dog kennel across the yard. I was so, well, actually, that was, I was mad at the dog. That wasn't my kids. So, but anyway, that was still the anger of a father. That's not God's anger, that you get mad because they're not doing what you say, therefore, you're going to make them pay. That's not God's. God is a wooer. God uh, will get angry because he is holy, he is righteous, he is the giver of all good things. He is a God of love. This is who he is. He is a God of truth. He's a God of reconciliation. He's a God of forgiveness. These are who he is. And when he looks and he sees 
uh, sin, when he sees self-righteousness, when he sees bitterness, when he sees violence, when he sees that, he is angry and his wrath is against that. And he longs for relationship. He longs for us to come to him and to be his children. And so, so that's the... Uh, that's the testing that was done. It's in his, he expressed his anger. And I once heard a, a statement uh, that said, it's really stuck in my mind uh, for, for decades now, but it says that a man is never as much on trial as in the moment of excessive good fortune. I'll say that again. A man is never, or a woman, this goes both ways, is never as on trial as on, in the moment of excessive good fortune. And we usually think of trials as when things are bad and we're in trouble and we're crying out to the Lord, and that happens here, but the real test is in the moment that things are really good. Where is our hearts? And so oftentimes our pathway, and this is that road that Shay showed the, uh, the cycle last week of turning from the Lord, being blessed by God, God responding and answering in, in faithfulness, and then us turning uh, against him. That road between our receiving the blessing and turning from the Lord, it's paved with pride and self-satisfaction and complacency. That's how, you, that's how we get there. So, um, so the people... Uh, for eight years, were, uh, uh, were, were put into oppression. Verse 8 tells us that the Lord was angered and sold into the hand of Israel. Um, he didn't send a deliverer at that moment to deliver them from their sins. He sent an oppressor to oppress them. And the name of that oppressor was Kushan Rishathiam, which literally means... Kushan, the double evil, the double wicked. That's the guy's name. And probably his mother didn't name him that. Uh, we don't know. But we think it was probably the people of Israel that gave, uh, gave him that name because he was a, uh, likely a very cruel and harsh oppressor. The passage doesn't tell us what he did and how he oppressed. But again, it's you can guess that it was probably both military and economic, where he came in with the threat of violence, maybe the action of violence, uh, taking slaves. These are the things that they would do, but exacting some kind of economic cost. I want your crops. I want the first part. I want the, your production, your wealth, and give that to me, and you will not live under this threat. And so eight years of that, and they cry out to the Lord, is their response. That is the response that Yahweh, our Lord, wants from us. He wants our cries. He wants us at the point where we are, we are helpless, and we will see this cycle again and again through, uh, through the book of Judges. Verse 9 tells us how the Lord responded to their their cries. When they cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, and it was Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. There are four things that it tells us that, Caleb, that uh, Othniel did. It said in verse 10, 
it tells us, first, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Again, we're going to see this very phrase repeated throughout the book of Judges. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And that means that the Spirit was stirring up in his heart the, the courage and the prompting to take some kind of bold action. The anointing of the Lord and the Spirit being on him also meant that he was empowering him to do whatever he was calling him to do. So the Spirit was on him. Secondly, it says he judged Israel. And this judging is the, the word that we see. It's not like a judge in a courtroom. It is one who is exercising authority and leadership toward, toward a goal and accomplishing something. So he does that. And, and thirdly, it says he went to, to battle. He went to war. And, and then fourthly, um, it says he defeated and prevailed over Cushon. So he gained victory in that, and all in one verse with no detail other than we know what he did. In future stories, we get a lot more detail. But who is Othniel, and what do we know about him? It says he's Caleb's younger brother. So who was Caleb? Let's look at uh, Deuteronomy 1, 34, and I'll tell you some of the background to that from the, the book of, uh, see if we can get Deuteronomy 1, 34 up there. The background here is from the book of Numbers is that it, it only took, a lot of people don't realize that, that it took only about a year for the millions of people of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt to get to the doorstep of the promised land that God had promised them. One year, and they were there, primed, ready to go in, and God... Uh, told Moses to, to have him send in one man from each of the 12 tribes and scope out on a reconnaissance mission. And so he did that. And he chose uh, 12 men and he sent them in. And they came back to tell what they found. And he said, they, they, 10 of them said, the people are big and they're bad and they're well-armed and, and I, we're going to die if we go in there. That was their response. And in spite of the Lord saying, I want you to go in, they said, no, we're scared. And they scared the people of Israel, and they actually wanted to go back to Pharaoh and ask him to take them back. And except for two, Joshua and Caleb said, no, it is right. They're big, they're dangerous, but our God is bigger. And these were men of faith and courage who were prepared to do what the Lord had asked them to do. So here we see in, in Deuteronomy 1, after they've God said, okay, you're not ready for the promised land, go run laps. That's what my coach used to say. It's time to go run laps. So they went and actually ran laps around a mountain in the hill country for 40 years as the nation, and then they're back at the doorstep of their promised land again. And Moses says these words uh, to, uh, to the people. He says, Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation will see the good land that I swore to give to your father, except, he says, for Caleb in verse 36 and verse 38, he says, and Joshua. In verse 37, he says, even I won't be able to go in because of things that I've done. 
But he says about Caleb, he says, he shall see it, and to him and his children, I will give the land on which he has walked, because he has wholly followed the Lord. This was Caleb. Othniel is his younger brother, probably a significant, you know, younger by a significant amount. And that is Caleb. That is the legacy that we go into. So let's jump forward to Judges 1, and that's where we see Othniel for the first time. Actually, the same story occurs in Joshua 15, but we're going we're gonna to look at it here in Judges 1. What's going on here is that they've been at the doorstep. Caleb has led his um, group of people that he had authority over within Israel, and he's led them into the land near Hebron in, in Judea, which is the allotment that was given to Caleb. And his order, his, his task was to take possession of the land. And there was one particular trouble spot in the, a place called Debir, which was also called Kiriath Sefer. Don't know why they had two names, but Caleb said, uh, he who attacks Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, his younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When Aksa came to him, Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field, a place of land for them to live. And then it jumps and says, and she dismounted from her donkey. There's a big parenthesis there where it must be that Othniel had gone to Caleb, asked for a land, got the land, and came back. And I think, and at that point, she, she goes to Caleb and says, give me a blessing since you have sent me into the land of Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. Here's what I picture in my mind is that Othniel uh, had gone to Caleb and said, father-in-law, give us some land. He said, okay, I'll give you the Negev, which is a desert. He comes back to Aksa, who is clearly a very strong woman. And Aksa says, okay, what happened? And she says, he gave me the Negev. She goes, well, did you get water too? No, was I supposed to get water? <laughs> and so she gets on her donkey and goes back to her father and says, Father, he says, what do you want? He knows what's coming. Give me a blessing. And so that's just how I picture it happening. And so he gives them abundantly, just like God would. He's a godly man. So he gave abundantly when she asked uh, for the springs. He gave the upper and the lower springs. So Caleb was a man of great uh, courage and faith, and Othniel was his younger brother. What do we learn about Othniel in these two passages, the one with Cushan and, and the one with, at Debir? I've got five things that I think we learn about this man. And the number one is that he's a leader. Doesn't give us that detail, but you cannot do what he did. You cannot win battles without others trusting in you and following you. And he did this. He won uh, two significant battles. Second, 
uh, he's available when no one else was, when other people didn't rise to the task, when there was a critical and challenging need, he rose to the task and was available. The third, that he's courageous. Both of these tasks, and particularly probably against Kushan, were tasks of risk, and success wasn't assured, and he went forward. So Othniel was a courageous man. Fourthly, he's faithful. It says the Spirit of the Lord God was upon him. He was a man led by and prompted by the Holy Spirit. He, his voice must have been attuned to the Holy Spirit. And he carried through his calling to its conclusion. He didn't do it halfway. A fifth thing, and I'm getting creative here, but I think it's grounded in Scripture. He was old, 70 or 80. And I think this is why Shay gave me this passage to, to preach on. I'm pretty sure. Um, but he probably was around 70 or 80. And what what a lesson for us or an encouragement for those of us who are over 50, shall we say, at any age that God has a purpose. As long as we are on this earth, as long as we are called uh, children of God and here, we are here for a purpose and, and we have a role to play. And it doesn't matter what that is as a prayer warrior, as an encourager, as a mentor, uh, or as a leader, and what every, whatever role uh, you play, God has a, has a role to play. We oftentimes use the, this kind of a sidelight thing, but you've heard people say, don't be on the sidelines, get in the game. Well, the sidelines is a really important place. And particularly as I get over 60, you know, it may not be, mine may not be, uh, you know, on the, on the playing field, Maybe I don't even want to be there, but you know who, who's on the sidelines? Is Nick Saban? Does he contribute to the victory? Does uh, John Wooden or I don't know how many of you know these things, Vince Lombardi? You know, there's people on the sidelines, even the people that bring water. Try, try to see who does well in the fourth quarter without people bringing them water. The sidelines is an important place. What we don't want to be is spectators. So... We're in the game regardless of what role uh, the Lord gives us. And the last thing, and this is again artistic license, I'd say Othniel was a quiet leader. Um, he's not someone that, that pushes his way forward. Maybe he needed prompting. Maybe he needed Caleb to say, maybe he loved Aksa. And he needed Caleb to say, okay, I'm giving Aksa to whoever takes the step of defeating Debir. I don't know. But I see him. He was not a man that seemed to push his way forward. But the results of what he did in the final verse was 40 years of peace. It was victory over the enemy, and it was peace of Israel for 40 years during his life, and then he died. So here we had a quiet but effective leader in Othniel, a gift from the Lord. So lastly, landing the plane, what do we learn about God? Those three things that we want to ask, what, what do we learn about God from this? I learned that he's a loving father, that, um, that he's someone who loves his children and wants to be in fellowship 
whether he's angered or whether he's grieved, when we go away from him, he calls us back. He will do what's necessary in our life, including discipline and trial, to bring us and woo us back to him. What I would have done, Burton French, given those circumstances, I would have gone back to the flood button. I would have pulled that out. Okay, we're starting over again. Remember what he did with Noah. In this circumstance, they're disobeying me after I've done all that flood button. And I would press that baby and we'd start again. But God had already promised he wasn't going to do that. So he's wooing his people back. He doesn't send a deliverer to deliver them from their sins. He sends an oppressor to oppress them so that they would feel the weight of the separation from God, so that they would feel the weight of their helplessness and come to him rightly, not in pride and tribal arrogance, but to come to him in helplessness and a desire to be with him. Forty years. Who else led for 40 years? Moses, Solomon, and David. Big names, but Othniel, uh, not as big, but a quiet leader from a good and loving God who is faithful. God also shows his faithfulness in this. He hears our cries, he hears our prayers, and he responds. Ultimately, our Lord deals with the issue of sin, and he does send a deliverer, and he shows his ultimate grace and faithfulness when when in the fullness of time, he sends the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh, to be that deliverer from sin. This is the message that we have throughout Romans. And what I'd like for us to do as we go through Judges, two things, I'd like us to remember the voice of Romans speaking the gospel and freedom from oppression, freedom from sin. We're going to be getting into some really ugly stuff over the next six weeks. And remember that voice of freedom from bondage, freedom from oppression, freedom from sin, victory from sin, reconciliation with God, being adopted as his sons and daughters, fellowship in the Spirit. This is the voice of Roman. Let it remain in the background and then be longing to get back into it after this. We'll have a good time here, but let's long for, for Romans. What do we learn about ourselves in the, in the world around us? What does this tell us? Well, what we need to do is realize that in this story, we're not Othniel. We're also not a third party looking at how badly Israel did and how could they have done that after such blessing. No, we are Israel in this story, each one of us. And Northway Church is Israel in this story. We are quick to turn to pride and complacency, aren't we? When we're, when we're full of gifts, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, where we can forget the Lord, we can turn to worldly ways. What do we do when we go among unbelievers? Do we go and adopt their ways and take on their idols, or do we go to be a blessing? Do we go to, to be a gospel influence and a good influence? That's our role. Each one of us thinks, I know in my own life, too often I've been impacted when I should be 
a missional, godly influence on people. We need the Lord for that. He's graceful and full of grace in, in dealing with that in our lives, but we need to, to do that. Stay away from the idols of fear, bitterness, rage, blame, defensiveness, lust, self-righteousness. We have one need, brothers and sisters, and that's to cling to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and to take up his cross and to follow him daily. And there's two responses. One is in provision. When the God is blessing us, let our hearts overflow, not with pride and complacency, overflow with humility and gratitude and a longing to pass on that blessing to others. And secondly, in trial and in hardship and need, because we're often there, aren't we? Is to cry out to the Lord and to gather with others and cry out to the Lord together. I'm so glad that we're starting to institute this five minutes of prayer before we, we get into the to the word. Uh, as a church, I just you know long for us to be be that church of prayer and crying out to the Lord on behalf of one another and our community all the things that we, we love. So I'll close here with four uh, verses that not on the screen, but I'll just tell you from the New Testament and the gospel, which really speak to our hearts. Second Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord told, tells Paul, but my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. He wants us to revel in our weakness and our helplessness, our need for him. Galatians 2, 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Not I, but Christ. Let that be our mantra. It's in our songs. Let it be our mantra in life. John 3.30, John the Baptist declaring at the end of his life saying, I must decrease, he must increase. May that be our, our heartbeat as well for Jesus. And then our Lord himself in Matthew 22, when asked, what's the greatest commandment? And Shay touched on this last week. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6, which, which Shay talked about. And he says, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. But then he adds on something that Deuteronomy didn't. He said, The second commandment, which is like it, so he means it's 1A, 1B. In fact, you can't do 1A without also doing 1B. It's like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And in the minds of Jesus, the neighbor is not the guy who looks just like you, who's next door and thinks like you and acts like you. Your neighbor, as we learn from his story of the Good Samaritan, your neighbor is the one who is in need, who's lying on the street in need. And it doesn't matter who you are, or where you're from, or the difference that that person is, that we are to love our neighbor. And he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So if you have trouble keeping all of what you're supposed to do, just remember those and let the Holy Spirit inform your life. I'll close with a story that's not totally related today, but I think it is in some ways. One of the things we get to do as elders is we get to affirm all of the applications for membership here. And in that, we read uh, the applications and the testimonies, the, the story, the personal stories of how 
these people came to know the Lord, and we get to pray over that. And so I was reading one, and it said, referred to a period in this in his life, and he said, I went uh, through a period where I had a deepened faith. But I think it was misspelled a little bit. Instead of deepened faith, it was deep end faith, like the deep end of a pool, you know. And at first I kind of smiled and I thought it was just a, a typo. And I don't know if it was just a typo, but there was a whole lot of spiritual truth behind that. And I thought, ah, a deep end faith. When so often our faith walks are, I'm here in the shallow end. You know, most of us are too often in the shallow end, ankle deep, knee deep, and there's not too much risk in that. So as we grow in the Lord, maybe we get a deepened faith where we're growing in our knowledge of Him, we're loving others, we're serving others. Um, our, our worship, we're deepening and we're growing and it's getting more, hey, we're getting really into this thing and it's neck deep and it's close. And you feel, you feel that like when you walk into the deep end, toward the deep end of the pool. And that's a deepened faith and it's a, it's a good thing. And that's, I realize that's probably maybe where I am, but then I started thinking a deep end faith is to be thrown into the deep end of the pool where your feet aren't on the ground and you are totally helpless. That's the message here is that God wants us at that point of helplessness. I think God wants Northway to be a deep end faith church. And the reason why I say that is just looking what he's done over the last few years uh, with uh, we were maybe confident coming out of the village church and becoming Northway and so excited for the future. And God says, they, they need to need me. Here's a tornado. And I don't, not saying that he sent a tornado to do this to, to, uh, to Northway church, but in the midst of it, do you do that? Is that part of his grace to remind us to destroy our building? We're going through a long season of grappling with the impact of that. We've been so, people of this church have been so gracious to deal with its impact on us and this, this ministry. But he gave us a pandemic, right? He, it wasn't, the pandemic didn't arrive so that Northway would build their faith, but in the midst of it, God said, this is another challenge for you, Northway. Are you going to, we're going to be tested. Are you going to turn to me or where are you going to turn? And then he put us in the middle of a crazy period in the history of our community and nation and country and world. And with all of this turbulence, and you see in churches are being torn apart in this. Are we going to turn to the world and be part of that craziness? Or are we going to look to the Lord to turn our eyes upon Jesus and be a deep end faith church? That's what I long for us. Elders, that's what I long for us. So, and members and people have been of, of our uh, Northway Church, I just uh, long for that. So let's close in prayer. Thank you. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, let your word not return void, but accomplish all that you want to do in us today. I thank you for this time, for your blessings. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.